0: Well, you know, this season of Advent, it reminds us uh, that the purpose of Advent, the celebration of it, is, is to be reminded that God keeps his promises. I mean, God's promised to send one to save, and he has sent one. And, and we've been studying about this Jesus who's come to save, that he's come as a friend. You know, we read in John 15, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for a friend. So Jesus comes as a friend, but he comes as a shepherd. In John 10, he said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He, he's a good shepherd. Today, we're going to see that he's, he's a servant. And we know in Mark's gospel, he says, I've not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus has come down to lay down his life for many. We're going to look at John 13. You, you heard As Becky read the scripture, a beautiful story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Now, only John's gospel contains this story. And it's a remarkable story of of the Savior washing our feet. Two truths I want to bring out to you today. is The first truth would be that he's come to serve us. He has come to serve us, and and I'll explain that. And then secondly, he's come to call us. He's come to call us to serve others like he serves us. Now, you can't serve unless you've been served. So those who serve like Christ must be first served by Christ. And that's what we're going to see. So, so just um, think through with me that he's come to serve us uh, first willingly. He's come willingly to serve us. Look in the first verse with me for just a minute. He says that before Passover, that Jesus knew his hour had come for him, To depart from this world. So so Jesus knows what's going on. So Matthew 13, or sorry, John 13 begins a new section in his gospel. It's called the Book of Glory because Jesus reveals himself in a unique way, and particularly in chapters 13 to 17. So in the first 12 chapters of John, he has been explaining these signs, establishing himself as a the Messiah. But now he's just going to reveal himself to his disciples in a unique way. In fact, John Calvin, the great reformer of the 16th century, said that the other gospels tell us about Jesus's body, but this tells us about Jesus's soul. It really opens up. And Jesus knows, and he's revealing to them that he knows that this is my hour. Now, Jesus didn't always say that, in John 2 and John 7, he says, this is not my hour. But now he says, this is his hour. So he knows the hour has changed. And what this hour is, it's the beginning of the gauntlet. It's the beginning of the arrest and the betrayal and the, uh, the mocking and the, the trials and the torture and the crucifixion. This is his hour. And he knows it. He's not surprised by it. Earlier in John chapter 12, he says this, he says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So I want you to see that he is aware, and he knows he's willingly coming into this hour for us. But not just is he willingly doing it, but, but he's able to be willing to do it. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, the Father has given all things into my hands. I've come from the Father, I'm going back to the Father. Jesus is fully aware of who he is, and he's disclosing this at all things. So God, at this moment, is putting all things into the hand of Jesus. So Jesus now has all authority, glory, power. Jesus has everything he needs to accomplish everything he's going to do. And God has given it all to him. And notice what it says. It's given into his hands. With all the power and the glory, he could crush his enemies with those hands. But he chooses to use those hands to wash our feet. He chooses to use the hands in a way to serve us. He wants to serve us. But, but, but it's not sterile and clinical, like he's got a task to do and he knows he's going to do it. Notice what it says. He loved his own into this world in this world, and he loved them till the end. He loved us completely. It's the same word Jesus uses on the cross when he was dying, and he says, It is finished. In other words, I'm loving them to completion. There's no shred of shortage of my love that's moving me to die for them. I mean, it really just those first three verses cause us to just stop. I hope you can marvel, you can marvel with me over this picture of Jesus being absolutely. Divine, sovereign, glorious. Knowing all things set in the context of the ignorance of the disciples. You see the contrast. And yet he is moving with us. In his mind is us. So so in his mind is a love for us. He's concerned for us. In the moment of his greatest travail, he's thinking of us. I I mean, when you have a bad day... uh, Generally, what has come out of my mouth, and I imagine has come out of your mouth, is, hey, I, I'm having a really bad day. I, I, just need to, I just need to think about myself for a minute and how I'm going to handle this. Or if circumstances are really pressing on you, you just, I've got to concentrate on myself right now. Or, or, or just things are going just absolutely sideways, and I've got to take some time for myself. Jesus doesn't do that. I, I mean, he is so self-forgetful. He's not thinking of himself. He's thinking about bringing glory to God by expressing a deep love for his people. He loves us in the midst of his greatest travail. Paul kind of gives word to this in Philippians 2 when he says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Folks, I would ask you just to consider this, to meditate, to think about it. You know, we're in this middle of absolute zaniness with shopping and decorations and fun and pleasure. And I don't want to diminish any of that, but this has got to be central in our thinking. Otherwise, our pleasures and our happiness. Are riding on a very temporal experience, as opposed to letting our happiness ride on this eternal truth. You know, Blaise Pascal wrote these words. He said, "Um, I've often said that the sole cause of a man's unhappiness is that he doesn't know how to stay quietly in his room. We don't think, we don't meditate. We don't consider things anymore. We're moving, we're going, we're always doing something, thinking about something, planning on doing something. We don't know how to sit quietly in our room anymore. And just think about this, that his hour had come, all things were given to him, and he loved us to the end. So so you see a willing servant come. Okay. Secondly, I think you see a humble servant come. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. Now, this, he picks up, he gets up from the supper. Interesting, too, it says in verse 3, if you notice the transition, he says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. That's what moves him to get up from supper. He rises from supper, he gets up, and what's he do? He girds himself, he takes off, lays aside his garments, puts a towel about himself, gets a basin, gets water, And he begins to wash your feet. Now, this is kind of a cultural uh, nuance that many of us don't understand. But you know, this would have been socially and culturally just a big no-no. I mean, I mean, socially, Uh, nobody washed a friend's foot. Uh, It it was a servant's job. It was the lowest of the low. Nobody would ever want to do it. Why? Well, you can imagine they didn't wear shoes and socks. They had sandals. They were open. The roads weren't paved. They were dirt. They didn't have sidewalks and gutters and sewers and trash collectors. They walked in the dirt. They walked in the mud. They walked among the animal refuse. They walked among the trash. Every other filthy issue you can think of, they their feet were science projects by the end of the day. I, I mean, it would have been a mess. And to put your hands and face and get down around those feet and begin to clean those, nobody would want that job. You even kind of see that when John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to untie the sandals of the Savior he's showing how incredibly glorious Christ is by showing how incredibly low that he couldn't even get he couldn't even get above the low point to untie the sandals but it's also culturally anathema that the pharisees would say that a jewish person was never required to wash the feet of another person it would only be for the gentile for the lowest of the low that the, the newly The new coming servant would take that. Not even a servant that's been around for a while. And what does Jesus do? He gets up and he washes their feet. Now, you don't hear anything when he's washing their feet, and you shouldn't. They're probably all stunned to silence. This was the first time and the last time he ever washed any feet. So they were just stunned. He's the master, he's the teacher. And it's silent until when? He gets to Peter. He breaks the silence. Lord, you wash my feet? Now, I don't know if he's being incredulous. I don't know if he's being magnanimous. What we do know is that Jesus knew he didn't understand what he was doing because he says, you don't understand right now, but you will later. But even to Jesus' assurance, he says, you will never. In fact, in the Greek, it's never, never will you wash my feet. And so Jesus, of course, said these words that ought to ring in our ears. He says, then you have no part with me you're not part of this kingdom, you're not with me, you have no fellowship. Of course, then Peter says, well, then wash my hands and my head as well. So I think you know something else is going on, right? I I mean, this isn't just an act of humility. This isn't just a way to show how to serve. There is something more profound going on here. And, And what is, what's going on here? Well, I think what he's doing here, and you see it in verse 10, he says this, Jesus says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it's completely clean. And he says to all them, he says, you are clean, except one of them. You are clean. So he's saying to them, you're clean. What's Jesus doing here? I think he's showing us in a parable what's going to be happening the next day. In other words, if you remember the story from John's gospel and the woman anointed Jesus' head with oil before he died, pours oil on it, and all the disciples are saying, what's he wasting all this money for? That could have been sold and given to the poor. They didn't even understand. But she was showing in visual form what was going to happen the next day. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's showing us that it's pointing to a greater truth. The cleansing and the washing of the filth off their feet is showing what he will do the next day when he dies on a cross to cleanse our souls from the sin and the shame and the guilt that we have before God. Now, the reason I say that, I'm not just trying to insert a meaning into the text, but notice back in verse 1, when he says that before Passover, he says his hour had come to depart from this earth. And so Jesus, the context of the washing, is his death tied around Passover. Now, Passover is that feast of celebrating the people being drawn out of Egypt to Israel, the shedding of the blood of the Lamb, bringing release and forgiveness, and moving toward the promised land, moving towards God. And John the Baptist said in chapter one of the gospel, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said that when he saw Jesus coming, first thing he said. So I think Jesus is showing us by proximity to verse one that this washing is pointing, but there's more than that. I mean, think about when Jesus said to to Peter, you will understand afterward. After what? Well, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, with post-resurrection insight, he's going to look back and they're all going to say, oh, we get it now. We get it now. He washed our feet as an indication of what he's going to do for our relationship with God and our own souls. Another reason I think it's true is when Jesus says, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. Why would he say that if he's just worried about some example of what service looks like when it's humble? Why would he bring such a warning? You have no part with me. Maybe even they noticed when he laid aside his garments, maybe their minds went back to John 10 when he says that the good shepherd lays aside his life for them. So what I want you to see here is is Jesus came willingly, Jesus came humbly, but Jesus came sacrificially. This was not an act of humility alone. It was to do a work for us that we could never do for ourselves. As I said in Mark 10, he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, listen, we're in Advent, the holiday season, and back a few years, if you remember, the big debate was over happy holidays and Merry Christmas. And Boy, we had some people driving some deep stakes in the ground on I'm going to say Merry Christmas. I don't care what happens. I'm saying Merry Christmas. To me, I think it misses the whole point. This is what Christmas is about. This is what Advent's about about Jesus Christ coming as a servant, no less, for us, to serve us. That This picture of the cross, you're to see an immensely divine love. He loved you to the end. I mean, the one who washed the feet of Peter, who would deny him, of Thomas, who would doubt him, of the rest of them, who would desert him. He washed their feet. This love, when you get in your minds, when. He has come down to serve us. Hands that, that were susten- suspending the universe are wrapped around our dirty feet. This love is meant to change us. It's meant to move us. It's meant to transform us. It's not some esoteric truth that's neat to banty about. It's meant to do something to us. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For the love of Christ controls us. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him who died for us and rose again. This love is to change you. It's to control you. The selfishness that we struggle with, it's to put a knife in it. It's to crush it. His love controls us. It moves us. It adjusts us. Our, our, our decisions are different because of this love. Otherwise, we just know it, in, we just know it as an abstract truth and not as a concrete reality in our life. You know, John Flavel was a great preacher in northern England. He was Puritan in the 17th century. He talks about the love of Christ. And here's what he says, and it's it's a bit long, so bear with me. He says, Ecstasy and delight are essential to the believer's soul. They promote holiness. In other words, we're to be excited about him. We are to be happy about Christ. We are to be excited He says, we were not meant to live without spiritual exhilaration. And the Christian who goes for a long time without the experience of heartwarming will soon find himself tempted to have his emotions satisfied from earthly things. He says, the soul is so constituted that it craves fulfillment from things outside itself and it will embrace earthly joys for satisfaction when it cannot reach spiritual ones. He's giving us a warning here. He says, the believer is in spiritual danger if he allows himself to go for any length of time without tasting the love of Christ and savoring the felt comforts of the Savior's presence. He says, when Christ ceases to fill the heart with satisfaction, our souls will go in silent search of other lovers. Boy, is that true. Do you know the love of Christ? I mean, does does it strengthen you? Think about Joseph Bengal, He was an unfathomable New Testament scholar, world-renowned, known in the previous century. Great scholar. One of his students, at the end of his life, he's laying, dying. And the student says, what's the most important thing that you've ever learned about God? In all your studies, what have you learned? What he said was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. When you take all that learning That's what it boils down to. He loves me. He loves us. And you see it right here. You cannot miss it. You cannot look at the king of the universe girding himself with a towel, washing your stinky, smelly, dirty feet and not say, he doesn't love me. Do you also see, though, the necessity of him washing your feet? Do you see the necessity of him cleansing you For you to be belonging to him. Notice Peter didn't understand this about the Messiah. You know, Peter objects to his feet being washed. I'm sure that Peter would have served Jesus. He said he would die for Jesus. Amazing how the promises we make. But but I'm sure he would have been willing to serve Jesus, but he wasn't willing to be served by him. He didn't think he needed it. He didn't know the weight of his own sin. He didn't know how absolutely wretched, filthy he was before God. And so he, he, he deflected, he deferred. No, 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 no. You will never wash my feet. No, no, he wants to spare Jesus the work, is what he wants to do. No, I can wash your feet. The necessity of us being cleansed by Jesus is very clear right here. And, and sadly, I think many of us, particularly religious people like us, we are willing to be served. We are willing to serve Jesus, but we're not willing to be served by Him. We don't like to be beholden to people. No, 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 don't do that. No, no, no. We don't want to be beholden. We don't want to be in arrears with someone. And, 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 and almost subtly we begin to be like Peter when he says, No, 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 you, you shouldn't wash my feet. The Christian says, You have to wash my feet. And not a partial cleansing. You, You need to cleanse me entirely. The Christian is realizing that his cleansing is not a nicety, it's a necessity. It has to happen. Otherwise, we have no share with him. So you can be religious, you can go to church, you can do all these things. If you don't see that he has come to cleanse your soul from all of your sins. And this is the scandal of the cross. This is where it gets so scandalous because of what it requires of Jesus to save us and what that must imply about us. I I mean, for him, for the king of the universe to do this for us, what does that say? It says we're desperately needy. And this is why it's a scandal. It offends us. It is offensive to us. And in, in our natural mind, it is. But to the truth of Scripture, This is exactly what we needed, and that's why he was sent. It's a scandal. So so do you see the divine love? Do you see the, the necessity for us? But let me ask you another question. Do you see the permanence of this salvation? Look with me back at verse 10. This is his service to us. He says this. He says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Now this is clearly a difficult verse to translate. Uh, Everybody's—it's a very, very hard because he's—he's mixing metaphors here and he's mixing Greek words. You know, he's washing the feet, which is identifying us with being regenerated and clean and made right with God, and then he goes to bathe in verse ten. But you don't have to, except for the feet, and he begins to seems to switch metaphors on us, even with different words, as I said. So, so what does he mean? Well, I, I think simply and maybe not entirely, but simply he means this. He says that you are already clean. The idea was that once you left your home, so before traveling in this first century, you would bathe, and then you would leave your home, and your feet would get dirty walking through the streets, but you wouldn't need to bathe again when you got to the house that you were going to. You would just have to have your feet cleansed. In other words, you are clean. He says you are clean. Not every one of you, Judas wasn't, but you are clean. He's speaking about the permanence of his salvation. That 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 bathing that he's speaking about, that when we come to Christ, he washes our feet, that is like a, a regenerative bath where our sins are cleansed from us and we're now made right with God. That's what he means, that you are clean. You don't need to bathe again. You don't have to keep coming back to Jesus saying, save me, save me, save me, in a converting way. You are clean. You've been made new. Even when you're older and your mind begins to slip and, and you wonder, will I hang on to Jesus? Will, will my salvation be permanent? What happens if I lose my grip? You know, if you can, you just see the rope kind of being pulled from your fingers and your fingers give way and they can't hold on to salvation anymore. No, no, no. Jesus says, not one of them will I lose. He's talking about the permanence of his salvation, that you have been forgiven forever. And remember, this is said to the disciples who were just about to really start sinning against him. He is you're clean. They're about ready to abandon him, desert him, deny him, everything else. He says, you're clean. I, I don't know what it means except your feet. Uh, it, it could mean that he's speaking about for the believer that there's still a place for confession and repentance in life. That's true. It's in, right in 1 John one nine. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Maybe he's talking about that. I, I, I don't know, but... But, but the reality of it is the permanence of salvation is there. This ought to cause us to wonder. Listen to Charles Spurgeon wrote about this, understanding your forgiveness. He said this, he says, we are now capable of a joy which unfallen spirits could have not known, the bliss of pardoned sin. He said the bonds which bind redeemed ones to their God are the strongest which exist. He says, I believe that forgiven sinners will have a love to God and to his Christ such as cherubim and seraphim, never felt. I love this. Gabriel cannot love Jesus as a forgiven man will do. It's us. Permanent. He has saved us. And you're clean. You're clean. Why? Because Christ has served you by his death on the cross. You're clean. Now, you know, if there's... If this person here, you're looking at Christianity, you're not a Christian, you're thinking about it, or you're kind of on that fence just discovering, I'm glad you're here. This is a beautiful passage. I don't know what you've seen about Christianity before. I don't know who you've seen claim to be a Christian before. This is what the gospel is. This king of the universe coming down to stoop and wash your feet. I mean, this is an invitation for sinners. This is an invitation. This isn't an aloof, distant, cold-hearted God that folds his arms and waits for you to get it halfway straight, and then he'll come and help you out. This is the one that comes down to you and serves you as a servant. This is a beautiful God. I pray you would meditate on this. I pray you would think about it. I pray that you would consider all the other gods that you have sought help and encouragement from, and that you would stack them all up together, because they'll need that help, and then compare them to this God. Compare him to Jesus Christ coming to save. So, so this is it, first 11 verses. Jesus has come to serve us. He did it willingly. He did it humbly. He did it sacrificially. So what do we do now with that? Well, at minimum, we gather together as a church and worship. I mean, we, we do. We gather. Sunday should be an important day for us. I mean, we're hearing these things. We're singing. We should be the loudest singers I, I, thinking about what we sing and thinking about what he's done, we gather together for worship, but there's more, and you see it in 12 to 17. There's another response that Jesus gives us here. In 12 to 17, he doesn't just come to serve us, he comes to call us to serve. Look what he says in verse 12 to 15. When he had washed their feet, he put on his garments, resumed his place, and said to them, you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. What's he saying here? He's teasing out the implications of what he's just said. He's saying that if I have cleansed your feet, if I have cleansed your lives, you ought to be serving other people as I've served you. You ought to be washing their feet. Now, we don't serve people in a way that can cleanse their sins. But we can serve people in a way which is sacrificial, which points back to him cleansing our sins. This is what we call the gospel work. The gospel work is where I serve you in such a way that it brings cost to me for your good, which reminds you of what Jesus Christ has done. That's the epitome of service. It's this idea that if we belong to him, then we're going to do this. In other words, this service, your active sacrificial service, is a mark of your discipleship. It means you belong to him. If you're looking back in your history book right now, and you're having trouble finding any acts of service, then you have to ask, why? I I, I mean, we follow what he says. The sheep hear his voice, they listen, and they obey. So, So he's saying that we're to be doing these things for one another. And not only that, but look at the encouragement he gives us in 16. He says, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. This is a greater to the lesser argument. If the master is going to serve, and he has, beautifully, then shouldn't the servant? If the, if the one who sent the message is going to serve, then shouldn't the one who is the messenger? I mean, the argument is, well, yeah, I guess it works that way, doesn't it? So it's to convict us, but then he encourages us in 17. Look at 17, he says, if you know these things, well, what are these things? Well, it's in 14 and 15. In other words, washing feet, serving one another, doing as he's done to us. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Do you notice that? The blessing comes in the doing. The blessing doesn't come before you do it. You do it by faith, and then the blessing comes. If you don't do it, then you really don't know these things. I mean, Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 7. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. He says in 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the man who builds his house upon the rock. When the storms and the winds come, the house is going to remain. Those who hear my words and don't do what I say will be like the man who builds his house on the sand. And when the storm and the winds come, the house is toast. Your life will be in ruins. So, so he's clearly saying to us that we're called, if we understand that we've been cleansed and served, that we want to serve. We want to serve. We want to wash feet. Okay, what does this mean practically? Let me just tease this out for just a moment. It it means, okay, I want to give you three things on how I think it it can be played out. There's a hundred applications to this, but let me try to put it in three buckets. One would be that we serve with a view to the cross. We serve with a view to the cross. So we're serving in a way that we're willing to embrace sacrifice. We're serving with a view of what it means, the, the cost of it. I don't mean you've got to go overseas. I don't mean that you have to become a global missionary. I don't mean you've got to do evangelism down in Triangle Town Center in the holidays. I, I'm just simply saying it's something much simpler than that. Uh, let me start with men for an example. That you would do what your wife asks you to do. She's asked you to do something. You don't look at her with resentment, that... You know, you work all week and you got all these problems and, and, you know, you feel put out when she asks you to do something. Maybe it's engage the kids. Maybe it's to play a greater role in spiritual leadership. Maybe it's to fix something. Maybe it's to complete a to-do list. Just Can you just do what they ask you to do? Serving is doing what you don't want to do. But you're doing it for the glory of the one who's washed your feet. I mean, you may not want to do it. But but it's a display to her of the value of Christ that you would do it gladly, willingly. Or if you're a teenager, your parent asks you to do something, you just do it. You do it in a way that's somewhat peaceful. that You don't have to always argue about why are we doing what we're doing. You just do it. I mean, they're not asking you to burn the house down or hack off a leg or anything. Just do it. It really gets simple. Remember Mark Twain said, it's not the things we don't understand in the scriptures that causes problems, it's the things we do understand. That's the problem with scripture. But but it's not just doing things, sacrificial things. It, it could be forgiving people. You know, it, it, could be, it could be laying aside grievances and they're perceived and legitimate in your mind, but you lay them aside to restore a relationship with a brother or sister. That, that, that is washing someone's feet. It, it might be in terms of of costly sacrifice, where you're having to do something you don't feel you ought to have to do. This isn't yours to do, but you do it anyway. Or you do it knowing you won't get recognition. Or you do something that you're asked to do, even though you're in the midst of pain, that you serve through tears. You serve through your own problem. You don't pull out the, I need a break card, I need some time for myself card, but you do it in the midst of your own suffering, and they may not even know it. You, you, you can serve people. You can wash their feet through conversing with them. But you convert, your conversation is in a way, when you leave the conversation, you know more about them than they know about you. You know, we are conversational narcissists. And, and, and to, to the Christian is concerned about the spiritual well-being of another person. And that takes me asking them questions and talking to them. About them seeking their spiritual good, asking good questions. You know when it it, this is this is funny, so you can laugh when I tell you because I know you'll be hesitant to laugh. Uh, Because it it, so it happened when um, my mom died, and uh, we're at the viewing, and I did think this was funny. So don't don't get nervous about laughing, and. So a lot of people in the room and uh, all greeting and expressing their sympathy, which we appreciated. And, and so one guy comes up to me, and he said he was sorry that my mom died. And, uh, you know, she's right there. So, I mean, it's clear why we're here, right? And so I, I say thanks a lot. And before I finish thank you, he says, well, my mom died. And uh, I said, I'm sorry to hear that. And uh, when she died about 10 years ago, I said, well, that had to be tough. Well, it was. And he started telling me about it. And one minute went to two minutes, went to three minutes. It's getting five minutes now, and he's starting to get emotional and starting to break down over his mother dying. And I'm beginning to try to comfort him. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm, in, in my mind, I mean, I, I know he's not doing it on purpose. You know. And I'm, I'm kind of hugging him now and saying, Are you feeling better? You know? <laughs> And, and I walked away, and I'm just thinking, how many times have I done that? I mean, how, how many times have I just blasted into a situation, I took your experience, made it my own, and told you about it? It's fun to do. It's hard to talk about me. Why don't you talk about me? <laughs> just me- measure, you know, do you ask people questions about themselves? You serve them. It's washing feet. It, it's, it's, wanting, it's I care about you. It's self-forgetfulness. You know, C.S. Lewis, and you've heard me quote this before, he says, don't think less of yourself, just think about yourself less. So, So that's one way, serve with a view to the cross. I would also say serve with a view to others. Jesus loved us to the end. He loved us to the end. Service has to involve getting close to people. This is not romantic at all. And this isn't sexy, this is absolutely messy. Because to draw close to a person, to be able to wash their feet, you have to get real close. And, and this, is like, this is scary, crazy for some people. You know, the, It's like the old Linus saying to Charlie Brown, I love mankind. It's the people I can't stand. I, I mean, we love it in the abstract. We don't like it in the specific. But to wash feet means you get close. And you know, feet really are some of the most unsightly parts of our body. They are some of the ugliest parts. Right? My children ask me, just can you go with covered up shoes during the summer? Can you get rid of the flip-flops, Dad? They are ugly. But, but what a picture that he chooses to wash. Drawing close to people and loving with a view to others means that you are putting yourself in the position of getting in the messiness of someone's life, where you don't have answers, where you don't know what to say, where you're not sure where to go, but you're just hanging with them, even just a ministry of presence. But but you have to get close. If you live as an isolationist or if you always have that wall about you, I tell you, it's going to be hard to follow this command. And I'm afraid it's going to leave you lonely at the end. And it's going to leave us short because we haven't had your input into our lives. And and then the third way of serving is not just with a view to the cross, a view to others, but a view to the glory that's going to come. Look at that promise he gives us. You will be blessed. This is a beatitude. You know, I think about that passage, well done, my good and faithful servant. You know, can you think through with me? You know, Jesus seems to call us to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. Or Peter talks about that imperishable inheritance. We are called to look at that as an encouragement to serve one another now. I even think about that picture Jesus gave it. It's not in the context of service. It's in the context of his coming. But here's what he says in Luke 12, 37. He says this, He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. So Jesus is speaking about people looking for his return and living in light of it. He says this, he says, truly I say to you, so he's making a promise, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. Jesus is speaking about himself. He's going to come. This is in the next when he comes and sets up his kingdom, he comes and serves us. He grills himself with a towel, and he serves those who have served. It's what we're to look forward to. I mean, he continues to serve us. So, so when you do begin to, you, you pull up to the couple or the friend that you're wanting to speak with, and you get terrified that it's deep water and you don't know what to do, and you don't know how you're going to serve them, you're going to jump in. Even though you don't know, he'll teach you how to swim. He'll, the blessing is in the doing, and, and then you can look forward to that day. I'm doing this for that day. So we, we, we serve one another, not just with a view to the cross, with a view to others, but also with a view to the glory that's going to come. So there's a lot here. Verses 1 to 11 He has come to serve us, and He has humbly and, and um, willingly and sacrificially. And, and then he's called us to serve others. And only those who have been served by Christ can serve Christ. I, I do think in my mind too right now just for that, that person that really um, won't come to Jesus because of the darkness of their life and your stain of sin that you don't think he's able to forgive and cleanse you. This is for you. There, there is no one who has sinned so greatly to out out sin his capacity to cleanse and to save and and so that means whether you're not a even if you're not a christian he says come to me all you who are heavy laden and burden i'll give you rest you know what that means is run to him seek him ask him for grace ask him for forgiveness even if you have to ask him to believe that he exists just speak to him and for the christian here and, and you're, you're a Christian and now you're feeling guilty that you are a Christian and you haven't loved him. No, 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 put that aside. Give that to him. Cast your cares upon him. He says he cares for you. Just humble yourselves under his mighty hand and just receive the joy he has for you. Don't lose the sight of the love that he has for you by virtue of the fact that perhaps you haven't loved him back well enough. He hasn't loved you to get your love back. He chose to love you before you ever loved him. And that's a permanent choice that he's made of you. He said, and you are clean. You don't need to bathe again. Rest in that. Rejoice with me that we will be of greater joy than Gabriel on that day. Let's just take a minute now and and perhaps use this time to confess or to convert if you haven't ever come to Christ and said, forgive me and deliver me. Ask him even when we're silent or thank him or give give him thanks for all that he is. Elder, we'll close us to prayer. Close us in prayer in just a minute.